Okay, and welcome back to another episode of the Luke Tullock podcast. I am Luke Tullock. So first bit of exciting news is that the Fitness Fundamentals membership site is now live. You can visit that at luketullock.com slash membership. Um, yeah, it's been really great. It's been so exciting to see everybody sign up and have a really positive experience. I've gotten some really good feedback that the content there is in-depth, but it's also understandable, which is a really difficult line to walk. So I'm glad everyone is enjoying that. Uh, there are still, I think, a couple of spots left with the practical programming giveaway. So if you have a look, there's a 30-day trial for the Fitness Fundamentals. It's really affordable at 14 bucks a month and you get uh, an annual membership discount as well. Uh, and then I think there's a couple of spots left for the practical programming course, which you get for free if you're one of the first 100 people to sign up. So jump on that and I'll see you inside. Okay, enough of that. Now, I want to talk today about food choices and micronutrients. So, you know, we talk a lot about calories. We talk about energy balance and macronutrient ratios, how much protein you should eat, how much carbohydrate you should eat all of that sort of stuff. But the micronutrient and food choice side of things is also very, very important, especially for health. Now, you can get very lean on foods that are not particularly considered healthy foods necessarily. So, you know, I, I always make the analogy that you could get shredded on KFC, uh, but you would feel terrible and you wouldn't be very healthy. So, of course, body composition is a really big part of health. Energy balance is a really big part of health. It's probably the most impactful thing you can do for your health, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Uh, just because it is higher in the priority list for fat loss than, say, your food choices or your micronutrient intake does not mean that that stuff doesn't matter. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. All right, so just to clarify, when I'm talking about micronutrients, I'm talking about vitamins, minerals, fiber, and I'm also talking about other things like polyphenols, which are some compounds that are found mostly in plant foods. So obviously the food that we get our calories and macronutrients from have more value than just the energy or macronutrient content in them. Um, like I just mentioned, you would miss out on a lot of those fiber and micronutrients if you were eating something like just KFC. Now, the nature of a restrictive diet when we're in a calorie deficit is that it's required for dieting success. You do need some level of restriction for dieting success. Um, you, you know, you can't just eat whatever you want, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be getting leaner. But excessive restriction makes it much harder to be successful long-term. We've all had, well, maybe we haven't all had that, but I, as a trainer, have definitely gone through my fair share of running things like eight-week challenges, 12-week challenges, rapid fat loss kind of things. Uh, contest preps where we didn't have a long enough time to really uh, take the slow and steady approach and involved with that is a level of restriction that is not generally sustainable long term and the reason I stopped doing that kind of thing is because you get into this cycle of getting really great results that look fantastic on social media or on your website in terms of a before and after but if you looked at the after picture six months after that it's even worse than the before photo. And to me, that was not really, well, it was morally reprehensible, to be perfectly honest, because the people going into that were not expecting that. They didn't know that. And it might seem obvious to us now looking back, but I think a lot of people don't realize that it does need to be a more sustainable approach. And that doesn't mean you can't go through periods of high amounts of restriction, 
doesn't mean that there can't be some very aggressive dieting periods, but you do need to find something that's going to work in the longer term. So in my opinion, unnecessary removal of entire food groups should be avoided unless it is a medical issue. So to give you an example, removing dairy or grains for no specific reason is not recommended uh, unless that's guided by some kind of medical condition or a medical professional because variety is really important to both your adherence in the long term, like we just spoke about, but it's also important to your health. The reason why it's important is because it provides two main benefits. If we have more variety in our diet, it means that we will avail ourselves to a broader range of micronutrients. So some foods are particularly rich in certain vitamins and minerals. They've got a great amino acid profile uh, or whatever it is. They've got certain types of fats in them, but they'll be poor in others. So you might eat a food that's considered particularly healthy, but if it's all you ate, you would be giving yourself issues with deficiencies elsewhere in your diet. Spinach is fantastic as a food. It has a ton of great micronutrition in it, ton of fiber. It's very, very healthy. But if it was all you ate, you would be missing out on some major parts of your nutrition. So that's the first part. And the second part of variety is that it cre creates this uh, greater psychological enjoyment of food and it creates less social friction, which makes it, makes it much easier to stick to your diet in the long term. And this is such an overlooked aspect of dieting. You can't escape the fact that food has a profound psychological and cultural benefit to us. It's a huge part of our culture. You can particularly see this in well, pretty much every culture, but you tend to think of you know the Italians or the Greeks, you tend to think of food. And the reason why is because it's such a large part of how they interact with each other, as it is with all of us. Now, the psychological enjoyment of food and the connection to your culture and to other people around food and drink is a really important part of being a human. We are social animals, after all. We are mammals. We're basically evolved apes. And creating the psychological enjoyment of food is it's de-stressing and it's very helpful for us to make connections, which is a very important part of our fundamental needs as mammals. Now, the less social friction you can create and the easier you can make it to engage with your food uh, is going to be really important for your long-term success and your long-term happiness. So I think more variety facilitates that. And that's one of the major benefits of having more variety in your diet. Okay, so to sort of cap this off, this first section, context is really, really important. There are no universally good or bad foods. It just kind of depends what you can get from it and how it fits into your current diet. Variety is super important. So fruit is generally considered really healthy, but if all you ate was fruit, your health would suffer. And by the same token, sugary treats or junk foods, quote unquote, are considered unhealthy, but they do provide enjoyment and the psychological benefits. So that's actually a health benefit that they have. Some uh, traditionally healthy foods have really high calorie values as well. So like muesli and nuts are really high in calories, which might not end up fitting into your diet very well. And so they might not be the best healthy choice for you. Um, I suppose it's a bit of a cliche, but moderation is key. I think it's best to have an allowance for foods that you enjoy. And I tend to tell a lot of my clients to use about 10 to 20% of their daily calorie intake coming from whatever foods they like. And that means that they tend to get more variety and they tend to enjoy their food a lot more and they tend to be more adherent as a result. 
So this comes back to the concept of nutrient density. You want to think about the caloric load of the food you're eating versus what you get from it in terms of a micronutrition standpoint or even a psychological benefit. Obviously, we want to try and focus as much as possible, especially when we're in a calorie deficit, on foods that are relatively low calorie and relatively high nutrient. That's a really good food choice on a diet. So something like berries would be a great example. Low calorie, really high nutrient, high fiber for their weight. So a really good choice on a diet. Um, the opposite can be much more difficult to fit into a calorie budget. So high calorie and low nutrient is obviously something that we're trying to avoid as much as possible. And every food exists on some sort of spectrum between those two. You can obviously have some high calorie and high nutrient stuff. So I tend to put nuts into that. Really, really healthy, but also pretty high calorie. Now, vegetables tend to be good food choices in general for micronutrition because they have high fiber, they have high water content, low calorie load, high vitamin and mineral content. The only real downside is that they tend to be a bit low in protein. And for many people, they tend to be a little bit unsatisfying to eat if that's the only thing that you eat. So speaking more about fiber. Fiber is really important for multiple reasons. It promotes gut health by providing food for your gut bacteria. We call that prebiotic material. It promotes satiety so that you feel more satisfied from the foods that you eat and therefore less hungry. And it's also associated with a lower incidence of some types of cancer, obviously, particularly bowel cancer. And I mean, also, it's also just nice to be regular with going to the bathroom and having that feel like it's working pretty well. It just helps with the plumbing, right? There are two types of fiber, there's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. I wouldn't worry too much about how much of each you get. If you eat a variety uh, in your diet, then you're going to get enough of each of them. I think it's also really important to note that um, your total fiber intake can be too high and this can cause gastric discomfort. I actually just worked with a client uh, about a week ago who's having a lot of fiber, is having over 50 grams a day, which is a heap of fiber and just feeling constipated all the time, which is probably one of the worst feelings you can have. It's really terrible uh, if you've ever experienced that. And just lowering his fiber intake was the solution. So as far as fiber recommendations, I tend to recommend between 10 and 15 grams of fiber per day per 1000 calories that you eat. And for most people, that's gonna land somewhere between 20 to 50 grams of fiber a day. Um, you'd have to experiment to see for you personally what works best, but that's a good range to fall into. Now, some people ask if they should count calories from fiber. Fiber is fiber, and the definition of it is basically carbohydrates that we can't digest very well, or we can only partially digest. So some fiber is partially digestible by humans, but some's completely indigestible. And this basically means that for the parts of it that are digestible, we can extract some energy from that fiber. Also, our bacteria in our guts can ferment some fibers to produce short chain fatty acids. And we can then absorb and use these fatty acids, which provide us with energy. So given all of that, it's actually really, really difficult, if not impossible, to know exactly how many calories you're getting from the fiber because you'd have to work out exactly how much is getting digested, which you can't do. Uh, or you'd have to work out how much fatty acid is being produced by your gut bacteria, which again, you can't do. So you have two options. You can either count fiber as part of your overall carb intake, or you simply don't count it at all. As long as you're consistent with how you count fiber, it doesn't matter. 
any changes you make to your diet will still include your your target of 20 to 50 grams of fiber anyway. So it's, it's still going to be accounted for. I tend to include the fiber that I eat as part of my overall carbohydrate goal, but you don't have to. You can do it either way. Now, depending what country you live in, it might display total carbohydrate and net carbohydrate on any products that you eat. The net carbohydrate is the total carbs minus the fiber. And so they'll tend to only list the calories from the net carbs on there. Um, that depends on which country you are in though. Okay, now while I'm on fiber, I'll just touch on FODMAPs, which is something that I talk about quite a lot on my social media. FODMAPs stand for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Essentially what they are, are these uh, carbohydrates that are only partially digestible to the gut. And what happens is our gut bacteria degrade this undigested carbohydrate and they produce gases like hydrogen and methane, uh, carbon dioxide too, I think. And so these can be the cause of bloating or gas or general gastric discomfort. Now, if you have IBS, it's an absolute must that you eliminate FODMAPs. It's, you know if you've got IBS, it's very, very uncomfortable. Um, and eliminating FODMAPs is what this diet was originally produced for. And it was produced and researched originally by Monash University here in Australia. Now, most people to some extent are affected by FODMAPs. And so if you're experiencing any gas or bloating, this is the first place I would look and try and eliminate them and play around and see if it does affect you. There's some of them that are going to be much more problematic for some people and others will be completely unproblematic for you. And there's also a threshold to how many you can tolerate. So I'll give you an example. Many people struggle with lactose. Lactose is a disaccharide. It's found in milk, soft cheese, and yogurts. And many people have trouble digesting that. So there's people who are gonna be completely lactose intolerant. And there's anywhere up from that on a spectrum to people who can tolerate quite a lot. I happen to be someone who can tolerate quite a lot of lactose. So as far as FODMAPs go, there are others that I can tolerate not so well. And there's things like lactose that I can tolerate very well. Some of the polyols, the sugar polyols like sorbitol and mannitol, which are artificial sweeteners, are things that I don't tolerate that well. So I could eat as much yogurt as I want every day and I feel totally fine. If I have, you know, more than say two protein bars, sometimes even one, depending on the brand, I'll find that that is too much and it will start giving me some gas. So there's going to be different types of these FODMAPs that are going to be problematic for different people and to what extent is also going to be different. I, I know roughly where my ceiling is with most of this stuff. So I know, you know, if I'm having protein powder daily, some yogurt daily, um, maybe a protein bar and then some fruit, like if I add all of that stuff together and I'm going a little bit overboard with one of those, then I'm probably going to experience some problems. But if I know that I'm going to be eating a lot of fruit and dairy that day, I might decide to cut down on the artificial sweeteners a little bit just so that I don't get the gas or the bloating. Anyway, if you want to learn more about that, just Google Monash University FODMAPs and they have quite a list of foods that are high and low in FODMAPs, all the different types. So you can experiment a little bit if you are experiencing some gastric discomfort. Okay, so from there, let's move on a little bit further and we'll talk more about the different sources of protein and fat and how that can affect your diet outcome. So fat sources, this is now going beyond obviously just 
pure macronutrient prescription, like how many fats should you eat? We're now talking more about the makeup of those fats. Uh, you probably know that there are saturated and unsaturated fats, and that basically refers to the chemical structure of the fat, how many of the carbons are quote unquote saturated with hydrogens. Now these fats come mostly from animal sources, although there are some like coconut oil that are not an animal source and they tend to be solid at room temperature. So any of the fat you see on meat and obviously coconut oil at room temperature tends to be solid. On the unsaturated side, we have monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. These both mostly come from plant sources, although fish oil, for example, is mostly polyunsaturated and they tend to be liquid at room temperature. Now, some types of fats are associated with better health outcomes. And I think that unsaturated fats, in my experience, tend to be way more underrepresented in many people's diets compared to saturated fats, especially if you're someone who eats animal products. So my uh, main recommendation here is to focus on eating mostly unsaturated fat sources where possible. That would be things like olive oil, fish, nuts, etc., and to consider eating lower fat protein sources if they're coming from animal sources like dairy and meat where appropriate. That does not mean that saturated fat is bad for you. It just means that as far as a ratio goes, most people tend to eat a lot more saturated fat than they do unsaturated fats if they are animal product eaters. And so I think trying to rebalance that by focusing a bit more on unsaturated fats is a good idea for your general health. So talking about animal products, let's move on to protein sources. Some protein sources like animal sources have a more complete amino acid profile than others. So yes, we are aiming for a general goal in terms of how much protein we're eating each day, but the protein source does matter. Animal sources are rich in most amino acids, whereas plant sources tend to vary in their amino acid concentrations. And so with plant sources, it's a good idea to use more variety instead of just eating a few main sources of protein from plants. And you might also want to consider getting a higher total daily protein intake if you're only eating plant protein sources. So what that means is that let's say uh, you're aiming for a minimum of 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight in terms of how much protein you eat per day. If you are only eating plant sources, I would consider bumping that up to closer to 1.8 or maybe even 2.0 grams per kilogram of body weight. So basically just don't be on the lower end of protein intake if you're only eating plant sources. Now, I would also be aware of the fat content of protein sources. Like I just mentioned, most animal protein sources come along with a reasonable amount of fat. And so hitting your protein target with fatty animal sources can mean that you go over your fat intake for the day or that you consume a lot more saturated fat than maybe you intended to. And so in these cases, using leaner cuts of meat or low-fat dairy can be pretty helpful as well. So on to fruit and vegetable intake. Avoiding nutrient deficiencies is basically just a case of eating enough variety of nutrient-dense foods. A variety of fruit and vegetable intake is recommended for everyone, regardless of your goals. I can't think of a situation where I wouldn't recommend people to eat a variety of fruit and vegetables. And most people in the nutrition realm tend to agree, although we are getting some more crazy diets out there that don't really go along with that, like the carnivore diet, which I'll say no more on. 
So as far as fruit goes, um, if you're one of those people who likes numbers instead of just like, oh yeah, eat a lot of it, I would recommend consuming one serving per 500 calories of intake per day. Now, very low carbohydrate diets may not allow for this and you may want to use lower carb sources of fruits. Something like berries, for example, is a better choice than bananas if you're looking to eat a very low carb diet for whatever reason. And as far as fibrous vegetables go, I would also consume one serving per 500 calories per day. And in gaining phases, this can be reduced if it impacts the ability to eat enough. Obviously, if you're eating something like, you know, 4,000 calories a day and you're trying to consume that amount of fruit and fibrous vegetables, you're probably getting a lot more uh, micronutrition than you need. And it also means that that extra fiber is going to make it difficult to get in the amount of food that you need to get in every day to gain. So you may want to reduce it in that case. But it's really important to note that eating this sort of stuff is particularly important in a calorie deficit. Because when you're in a deficit, like I said before, you tend to be more restrictive and you are limiting the amount of food volume that you're eating. So if you're in a deficit, your food volume comes down. It means that you are obviously eating less energy and your macronutrients are lower. But it also means your micronutrient intake is also lower because you're just not eating as much food. So in that case, you have to be quite diligent with your fruit and vegetable intake and you have to make quite an effort to make sure that you're getting enough fibrous vegetables because they are pretty low calorie after all. Now, what are the common vitamin and mineral deficiencies that you might see? There's a few of them and obviously I just recommend going to your doctor and getting a blood test and sorting anything out that way. Um, but some things to look out for are things like vitamin D. Vitamin D doesn't have very many food sources. It's mostly related to sun exposure. Uh, you can supplement with it, um, but it's a fat-soluble vitamin, which means you need to eat it along with some fat. Most supplements will actually have uh, a little soft gel that has a little bit of fat in it as well. But I'd have it with a meal just to make sure that you're absorbing it well. Um, calcium is another one, obviously related to bone health. Dairy and supplementation can be helpful there, but I would check with your doctor first. Zinc's another one that's located in meat, shellfish, uh, legumes, whole grains, seeds, nuts, dairy, whole variety of foods. It's involved in a lot of things. It can impact your strength, your immune function, your recovery from training. Again, just check with your doctor to make sure that your blood levels are okay. And then a big one, especially for females, is iron. Now, iron can come in meat and dark leafy greens. It will impact your general feelings of fatigue. Uh, supplementation for females might be appropriate, depending, but again, you need to check with your doctor. Now, I'm not providing how much you should take with any of these for a reason, so please don't ask me. I can't give individual nutrition advice on this podcast. I would check with your doctor, and if you want to use a supplement, I would go to examine.com and have a look at the dosages there for a typical dose and the forms you should use for those different vitamins and minerals. But honestly, I don't think in most cases you're gonna even need it if your diet is good enough. Should you take a multivitamin is what I always get asked, so I'm gonna cover that now. Some people do recommend using a multi as insurance against any deficiencies, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that logic. But I also don't think it's necessary if you follow the guidelines that we've spoken about in the podcast so far. The reason why I don't really like recommending supplements and multivitamins 
specifically is because the quality of a multivitamin is really difficult to assess. You've got to think about things like the ratios of different vitamins and minerals. You've got to think about the different forms of the various vitamins and minerals contained within. Um, some of those are going to compete with uptake for others and the ratios themselves are actually quite specific in terms of how we find them in food. The other thing is that in food, we have a nutrient matrix that is probably synergistic, but there are things like phytonutrients and other very nu various nutrients that we probably don't even know about yet that are all there in a particular ratio, in a particular form that work well together. And you miss out on that if you simply take it in the form of a multivitamin. Lastly, the multivitamins on the shelf don't really account for your regular dietary intake. So you could be eating plenty of something and then you take the multivitamin and one of the 20 or 30 vitamins and minerals on there is being delivered to you in a high dose that may be too much. So I don't really like recommending a multi in general. If you do want to take a multi, I think a good general recommendation is to either take a lower dose than what is recommended on the bottle or to cycle your use. So something that I tend to do is I will take it for two weeks and then I will take two weeks off. And that means that even if you are getting a high amount of something that's maybe a little bit too high, uh, at least you're getting a bit of a washout period there. Now, there is some variation with any supplement. There's a tolerance when it comes out of the factory to how high or low the concentrations of various components of that supplement are. And so I think that there's an inherent risk in that, especially when you're talking about, like I said, in a multi, there could be 20 or 30 different ingredients on there, or maybe even more sometimes. So that's an inherent risk that we're taking with it. Now, I don't think it's going to be dangerous, but I also know that the research on longevity and general health outcomes from multivitamins is very unconvincing for their use. So that's just something to consider. Now, when should you take a multivitamin? If you are unable to eat enough fruits and vegetables, or if you're in a really large deficit, a multi can be considered. Like I said before, if you're in a deficit, especially for a long time, uh, there's a good chance that you're gonna be exposed to some deficiencies in your vitamin and mineral intake just because the sheer amount of food you're eating is too small. So I still don't think it should be used in place of a varied diet, but it does have its place. Okay, I think I'm going to leave it there. That'll round out the episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this kind of content, this is the exact sort of thing that I discuss in more detail in my membership site, the Fitness Fundamentals that has just launched. Once again, you can visit lukeTullock.com slash membership to check that out. It's been really positive to hear all of the uh, great comments about how people are enjoying it and liking the content. So check that out. Otherwise, you can catch me on Instagram at underscore Luke Tullock. And thanks very much for listening. I will catch you in the next one. Oh, actually, and just before I go, if you did find this episode good, please share it with one person. The more information we can get out there to kind of combat the ridiculousness that is going on in the fitness industry today, the better. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Catch you soon. Oh,